0: Welcome to the official podcast of Customer and Partner Experience Engineering, where we'll be joined by Tony Colon and special guests to discuss the latest trends in technology, explore the humanity behind innovation, and discover something new along the way. I'm Megan Watson.
1: I'm Stephen Spire, And this it's is What, what makes, makes You Tech.
0: tech. On this week's episode, we have a very timely guest, Larry Lids, the Chief Information Security Officer for Cisco CX Cloud. He leads a team across all aspects of cloud security, including architecture, engineering, and compliance, while also pioneering new approaches like enterprise architecture and automation. Larry brings over 25 years of experience in information security, not only on the technical side, but also in communicating complex security issues to a wide variety of business, customers, C-suite, and board audiences. He leads with the belief that security is a cornerstone of good business. Prior to joining Cisco, Larry served as the SVP and Global CISO for CNA Insurance. He holds a bachelor's from University of Chicago and a master's from Northwestern University. Thank you for being here this week.
2: Hey, thank you for having me.
0: Okay, first thing we have to ask all of our guests, what makes you tech?
2: <laughs> I, I could I could go down the um uh, you know the like the geek it out nerd history, you know, kind of um you know, bulletin board systems, uh colossal cave adventure, you know that kind of whole history and, and so forth on it. But I think you, you know, it's an interesting and uh conversation. Um from from the standpoint of of security and, and how security plays into um, the 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 greater uh, world and kind of tech industry and tech approaches, um, you know I, I've I use sometimes the analogy of of a computer game. Whereas when you're you're playing a computer game, doing technology work is like playing a computer game. Um, the difference in security is we're playing against other people. We're not playing against the the computers and the AI and, and so forth. though... So, I started that analogy before computers were smart enough to stomp humans at um, chess, Go, et cetera, et cetera, um, and, and probably in the, the cyberspace, the they will stomp all over us as well. Um, but, you know, I'll say, like, f- for me, the thing about security that makes it really interesting and really engaging and really exciting is, is that it's first and foremost a business problem and not a technology problem. Um What we do and how we do things, what we need to do to protect the environment, is really about understanding what our business strategy is, what we're trying to engage, understanding how we can take risks, what we can take risks. All of that is informed with a deep technical understanding of what the risks are, the threats are, how people attack systems. Uh, what that means from a uh, broader perspective. But it's that business context that, that really excites me. And it's the communicating and dealing with people. Um, we put a lot of energy and a lot of focus in our organization on making sure the code is secured making sure we've got our environments properly locked down, that we're using least privilege when people are accessing environments. And all of those are absolutely critical things. But the Big primary item that we worry the most about is people clicking on links and um, being being scammed. Um, and so, you know, that aspect of engaging with people, talking with people, helping them understand what they need to do to act more securely and what they need to do to protect um, both Cisco as, as well as themselves in their day to day life. That that's what makes me uh, what, what I get up every morning excited to do. And that's what makes me tech.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, So can you talk a little bit about, you know, you're pretty well known for saying that security is everyone's job. So can you talk a little bit about why it's so critical for organizations and why it goes beyond people who may not even be working in the security industry?
2: Yeah, if you look at the security industry as a whole, um, first of all, we have negative unemployment. There's not enough security professionals out there. We are outnumbered by the threat actors who try to break into systems and, and cause harm to companies. Uh, we don't have the resources they do. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking a little bit later about um, you know state-sponsored threat actor groups who are really highly, highly sophisticated. They've got more money than we do. Um, and um, they're more diverse. They think broader, more differently. Um, So if we're focused on security being the responsibility of the security team, like we don't have enough people to do that. We need everybody to think about what they can do on their day in and day out. And also by and large, People don't attack security professionals. They go after the people who are perceived maybe to, to not be quite as uh, savvy and use those as a way to get into the environment, move laterally across the environment to cause harm, steal data, lock up systems, uh, whatever it is that they're, they're trying to accomplish.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting thinking about, I mean, you, you talk all the time about the attack surface and how large an organization is, it just increases that attack surface, right? Because you have, the more users you have, the more places, the more vulnerabilities. It's, it's not the system level, it's the people that interact with the system that are the greatest vulnerabilities to any system, it, I, I feel, and I, I think that you've talked about before. Yeah, and it's, and it's not just the systems too. I mean, it's the people themselves. I mean, the the um, maybe one
2: of the most difficult um, instance I've dealt with in my, my career was a situation where um, an employee at the organization I was working for had their 401k account drained um, and you know they're looking at it and you know that's the bulk of their 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 money is was in their retirement and um, someone had had fished them and used that to get into the um, 401k account and took the money out of it um, you know the the employee had gotten and a notification that, you know, someone had logged in with their account, it's like, I uh, just, you know, random email. I don't know what that is. You know, I'm going to ignore it. Um, and, and it was, you know, the money was gone. It was, if you know anything about the financial system, like you can generally reverse financial transfers for a couple of days after they happened. It, they caught it after that time period. They could get a, a percentage back, but not the whole thing. And, you know, as an employee of the, the, the organization responsible for security, like, first of all, like, the relationship between an employee and their 401k account really is not the company's responsibility as much as is the individual's individual agreement with them so the company like we could have taken a like hands-off stance this isn't our problem you know go go work it out with them um but you know it was a devastating event for the individual and it was you know a lot of really tough conversations um you know the individual didn't want to immediately fess up and say, "Look, I know I made a mistake," because they're worried about getting the money back. Um, and we talked to the the provider that managed the four hundred one k account, and a lot of conversations say, "Hey, you know these are the kind of controls you should have had in place. We think you have some responsibility. You should pay them back for it." Um, but it took us um, probably three months of regular um conversations and a lot of uh twisting of screws to be able to get that money back because that's like what happens these days is those impacts to individuals
1: right now as we're having this conversation larry is being pinged by multiple people asking him if cisco.com has gone down i i imagine that a lot of your and your team's time are fire drills hey i see a problem hey there is a problem. Can you fix this for me, please?
2: Um, yes, uh, I, you know I like to think that if we're running um, an effective, efficient organization, we don't have a ton of uh, fire drills. And in practical terms, I mean, if I think about the last you know couple months, we had a fire drill with Log for J. We had a fire drill to make sure we are blocking traffic from Russia and Belarus. This morning there was a bunch of questions around uh, potential compromise of Okta, which is a um, service provider we used for, for to enable the authentication into to CX Cloud and a number of other systems across Cisco. Um, so when you kind of see those sorts of things, they're all things that you need to jump on and and react to and respond to right away. Um, we do have people on the team who um, are really good at paying attention to like kind of the attack patterns and things like that 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 happen, so that. Um, Hopefully before things get too broad in the public sphere, we've got some information about what's going on and and, uh, an opinion, but um, every security thing in this day and age is a rapidly changing situation, particularly with what's going on with um, Russia and, and Ukraine right now like we need to be be prepared for significant cyber attacks. There was a, a message from the White House that came out uh, just yesterday as, as as a time of recording where the White House was saying, hey, be prepared for, for cyber attacks. We have uh, good uh, threat intel saying that um, we need to be cautious of Russia um, attacking this way. And um, that is the reality of the world these days. They have really, really advanced capabilities. Um, they could attack at any time. They could attack us. They could attack our customers, um, and they could cause significant harm. Um, if you if you read about and learn about cyber warfare, one of the things that, that is generally believed is, is that um, most advanced cyber adversaries spend time in advance getting into the system so that if they need to use the, the um, actual, uh, um, if they need to pull the trigger and cause harm, they can do so at that point in time. Um, there's been a lot of discussion around the, and I, I'm moving a little bit to 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 talk some about more broadly about Russia and the cyber warfare um, aspects of that. I think the a number of people, myself included, were looking at this and being really surprised that there were no major cyber attacks that that went on as they were invading, like it's expected that would just be be part of it. Now, clearly they were um, they were attacking Ukraine, and um, there's a lot of good work to to. Um, in, in Ukraine and and by uh, our colleagues over in Talos and so forth to try to defend against um, those sorts of attacks and, and, and help do that. But um, what only came out in the news um, a day or two ago was that there was a significant cyber attack against the satellite communication providers. And in particular, one of the satellite communication providers that went down was the one that the Ukrainian military used for their primary way of communications. They had fallback methods that they used because they're thinking, um, you know, aiming for a a highly resilient um, infrastructure in in those sorts of situations. But um, we don't hear about that, right? Those aren't things that come out immediately because a lot of cyber attacks can be below the radar. When we hear about things, it's either because um, a a attack stole data and a a company realized it and has an obligation um, to be able to publish it, or um, because... The cyber attack was meant to do harm and cause damage to the system. So, if you go back a couple of years, Russia launched a, a attack against uh, Ukraine called NotPetya, which was intended to, to cause harm and damage systems in Ukraine. And it got out and, and spread widely um, across the internet. Multiple companies, you know, taking you know tens of billions of dollars worth of damage from that. Um, but the really sophisticated stuff is not designed um in in that way, shape or form. Um, you may also have seen if you if you follow what's happening in in Ukraine, there's been a lot of discussions around the number of um Russian generals who have been been reported killed in action um in Ukraine. and It's a little strange from from my perspective, and I'm not an expert on the military So, you know, I I don't understand tactics and so forth But you think like generals you assume are sitting kind of behind the scenes and are generally out of the the line of of Fire, but what I've read is is that they are um, The Ukrainians are getting really good at being able to do analysis They're capturing unencrypted communications and then doing analysis to find out where the generals are so they can do surgical attacks To to kill them and I don't know I don't know enough about this you know, but so this is pure speculation. But that could be purely like signals, you know, work where they're looking at radio signals and triangulating and stuff like that. Or it could be that they've got access into some system and are, um, you know, have have cyber intel that helps them know where where these people are. And you know, so so you, and, and you know, who knows what they're they're, you know, they're saying It's the reason behind it. So it's a highly sophisticated um, uh, attackers who are able to. Attack for very specific reasons, it doesn't mean that we don't need to be worried about either us being a gateway for them to do those types of attacks or um, them the, a general decision to change the tactics to be be more damaging and you know attack more widely
1: so that's interesting that you say that so just ballpark I know that you don't have any probably information about this specifically, but just ballpark how what percentage of attacks do you feel that we actually know about and what percentage do we actually hear about? Like you're saying, because that goes on behind the scenes in the weeds so much and only a very select few people probably even know that things are happening. How much, how, what percentage of that do we actually know? Um,
2: so, you know, let me. I'm going to answer that from a couple of different directions. First of all, I, I believe most corporations um try to be transparent with their customers when there are cyber events to to varying degrees and that's to say in most um most most countries there are regulatory obligations to disclose risks and attacks um, from a cyber perspective. So from that perspective, I think companies do try to be transparent about what, what happens. Um, however, the focus is really in places where customer data can be put put at harm and, and really in particular individuals' information can be be put at harm. Um, so those ones I think are are pretty well known. Um, also, it's pretty well known in situations when's where um, there is actual uh, harm that takes down a system and therefore someone's unavailable. Anytime a large company goes offline these days, people's first assumption is, oh, it was a cyber attack. And and often it's somebody who fat fingered a configuration file on a router or something like that and had nothing to do with a cyber attack. But but like, there's enough people who think about it. And it's good. Like Always take the thought of, hey, this could be something bad that's happening. And in throughout my career, um, I have been involved in many, many large scale outages of um, technology systems to be in the room so that there is someone thinking and saying, "Hey, is it possible that this is a cause of a, an attack?" So that that we, you know, companies don't get, you know, two days down the road and go, "Oh, hey, this was somebody being malicious." You want to start thinking about that up front. Um, what we also know, and, and I, I don't have the the data at the top, tip of my fingers here, but we also know that the average time to detect an incident is in hundreds of days, not in minutes or hours, if you look kind of across industry. And of course, those are the things that are made public. Um, there are areas, you know, presumably somebody could be in the environment very quiet for for many, many time periods. So, um as a and, and then on top of that one of the big things that's been a, a trend probably in the last five or years or so in the security industry is something called threat hunting where you hire people who um, sit in your environment and what they do is start looking for signs that somebody's already broken into the environment you assume that the the, the um, threat actors are in the environment and you try to find them rather than saying hey is there anything that we're detecting in part of day-to-day act- activities that looks like someone's trying to attack and that's been industry-wide a very successful way to try to find and and ferret out some of these information. Um, It does require fairly sophisticated security capabilities.
1: So, which is also a thing that we've done, right? We've had held bug bounty bounty programs and things like that. Why would somebody choose to be a quote-unquote hacker to do this maliciously as compared to somebody that can make it make this happen as, you know, a legitimate living because they have to be really really smart or at least I feel like most people that do this on the wrong side of it tend to be just like these incredible people and they have this intuition and insight and they want to do these things but they're doing it for the <laughs> for the wrong side. Why would they choose that rather than making it a legitimate career?
2: Um, uh, there's more money to be made on the, the, for, for to be a bad guy, um, than it is to, to do it, uh, legitimately. Um, I, I love talking to, I love talking to, to, um, Interns and new college hires and and so forth. And one of the comments that I ha- had made at one point, actually, I was talking to high school students when I made this comment. I made a comment like, "How much money there was to be made on the, the you know, it, it is a it is a, a malefactor out there versus being a good guy." And um, the, the, as I, I realized, like halfway down, like, "Wait, wait, I can't be pitching you the uh, um, <laughs> the bad side." Come <laughs> more, more for, for, for um, I went the wrong direction with that that talk, you know. But but I think like the the, the fact Fact is, is if you start looking at, at the money that gets made in in the um, you know by bad guys, they make tons and tons of money. You you see ransomware situations where where people are making you know where ransoms are being paid in the fives and tens of millions of dollars. Um, that's a lot of money. Um, and yeah, there's risk with that. And it's not that one individual gets that. Normally that's groups. And of course, they um, the way cybercrime tends to work is, is that one group is subcontracting out components of the attack to other groups. So everyone needs to be paid in the chain. It's a, a very effective economy. Um, but there's a lot of money on, on that. Um, and what we know from research that's been done is, is that in general, um, the the risks are low enough with cybercrime that people make make a lot of money um, in doing it. Now, you also need to lack morals and ethics and you know, be willing to take on that personal risk. I mean, there's all sorts of other issues um, that are going on.
0: I don't know if you have any sort of insight around this, but do you know kind of like a ballpark, like what's the percentage of... Successful bad guys, uh, or is it pretty common that they could get caught? And if they get caught, how bad is the consequence?
1: Um,
2: so, so, first of all, if you look at it by number of attacks, there is a lot of low sophistication attacks that just fail; they're they're well protected against. Um, and and in fact, like that's part of the underground economy is this idea that you know you 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 know attack. It's, the, the cost of attacking two million computers is negligible. So go attack two million computers or two million individuals. You know you can send that phishing email to two million people. You know and you can you can automate it and use AI so each one's customized to try to get through all the anti-spam and anti-filtering fissures. So, so so go go scale and hope that you know somebody clicks on things. Um, in practical terms, like if you actually pay attention and watch the news about when um, people are arrested for cybercrime, it is really really rare. Um, and, and when it tends to do so uh, um first of all because it is really easy to um hop through uh different um di- different areas different countries cut across ge- geographic descri- um geographic regions um a sidebar i'll tell, tell, tell a story early in my career i was working at the university of chicago and um i ran the security team there, there and um, it was a time period where it seemed like every single attack that we would see that would come through the environment um, would would follow the same standard um, attack pattern, which is, is that we'd see a scan that would come across a network from from uh, South Korea, and then we'd see someone attack to attack us from Romania. Um, now. It was clear from the way the, the traffic flowed that these were part of the same attack. It wasn't like somebody was, you know, two different people were doing the the, the work and collaborating. It was one person You could tell from the timing that, that that was, you know, highly likely to be the situation. The fact is, if you start thinking about it, the person who's actually doing that attack could have been sitting anywhere in the world. Um, they can break into other computers, they can VPN in, probably they're VPNing in, then hopping through two or three computers to launch this attack. So if you start thinking about what this means from a law enforcement perspective, Um, If you're trying to arrest somebody for for a crime You need to be able to trap track back those connections between all the way back Which also means that everyone in that that attack path needs to have good logs to show where the step before it was um you know, so all of this points to the fact that that it is, you know, like you're not gonna catch someone by tracing them back. You have to find other mechanisms to try to catch them. So following the money was, uh, for many years, was a good way to try to catch people. Um, that's why uh, cryptocurrencies are used for almost all cybercrime now, is because it's much harder to track it back. Though you'll see then sometimes people make a mistake in the way they use cryptocurrencies and that leads to an arrest, um, because they're not careful about how they manage their wallet or, or whatnot. Um, so being a cyber criminal you know high risk in that you can get caught um, and you need to be very very careful about each one of the steps that you 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 do there um, and of course this is assuming that um, the cyber criminals working in a region that has an interest in arresting cyber criminals and one of the complaints the US government and many other governments have had against Russia is that Russia the perception is that Russia has given a pretty, ha- pretty free hand to cyber criminals to, to try to steal money as long as they don't um, uh, uh, you know try to steal money from from other people in Russia um you know and that's true for for multiple different regions and multiple different countries and you know the internet being as great a connector as it is People are very willing to to bounce through systems and and you know that cut across um, areas where countries don't have effective uh diplomatic relationships with each other, knowing that's going to make it harder for them to be held to account for for what they do and again, here it is I'm making it sound like it's a really good idea to be a cyber criminal because the reward is high, the risk is low <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> but let me stress this yeah. is not the case. Uh, yeah.
0: But I know you touched um, briefly earlier about how these said bad guys, you know, lack values and morals and ethics. But do you think it goes a little bit beyond that? Like, do they all have some sort of genetic makeup that makes their brain work smarter than the rest of us?
2: Well, well, I mean, any, anybody who has um, anybody who has received a phishing email um, will note that uh, that doesn't necessarily make them smarter than us, because um, you know the success rate on you know one of the traditional Nigerian four hundred four you know I, I'm a prince who um, you're going to inherit a whole bunch of money from me has got to be. Minuscule, particularly at this day and age, but you still see them going out. So not all the cyber cyber criminals are top of the barrel um, in terms of what they do. But also recognize that that a lot of the threats that we see don't aren't, you know, they're not financially motivated. And that's where we get into state-sponsored attacks where they're, you know, they're trying to hit other approaches. And to be clear, like pretty much every country in the world. Uses, you know, has some level of cyber capability when it comes to to launching attacks and um, getting into the environments. The the corollary, by the way, to the question you asked a while back about bug bounties and why don't people work for the the um, work for the good guys? If you go back and you look at the kind of beginnings of bug bounties, um, what you you see has happened is, is that people would uncover a new vulnerability and they would sell it to um, a company, generally a company that sells security products that wants early access to the vulnerability so they can detect those attacks better. Um, and they would sell it for like five, $6,000. Um, you know, if it's a good high quality vulnerability that would give someone remote access into a system. And after this been going, had been going on for a little while, someone realized that, um, a commercial entity would pay five or $6,000. A government would pay 200, 400, a million dollars for the same vulnerability because they wanna take that and use it as part of their cyber warfare arts. And also they have an attack that no one else has access to um, for, for a period of time until you know it naturally becomes public. So one of the things that in has inhibited that bug bounty ecosystem is, is that governments are willing to pay an awful lot of money to get access to the same information. Um, I think this is somewhat mitigated in, in modern bug bounties, where you know generally, like what we do is we pay uh, a company hacker one. Well, actually, we pay researchers who work for Hacker One to find problems and, and vulnerabilities within CX Cloud. Um, that you know that is us having a direct relationship with the researchers who are trying to find this vulnerability um, versus it being a third party that they're selling the vulnerability to, which is you know where where that competition with with uh, governments, particularly the U.S. government, but other governments is increasingly after there. Um, cut into it
1: so let's jump to something that you mentioned before but i want to come back to it now about uh you know basically the war between you know ukraine and russia and you said you mentioned that you know in a press release the us is saying hey be aware cyber attacks are coming so tell us two things one what are these are, are the governments or are the people you know that are going to be doing the attacking what are they trying to accomplish here um and maybe some tactics that they're using to to accomplish that and then also what can we do or what the government should do depending on who they're attacking to counteract or prevent you know uh from them from causing harm yeah so um you know first
2: um you know, we don't know I mean, if you if you look at like the White House's statement it is pretty broad, pretty generic, like, hey, be prepared for more cyber attacks to which like a number of people reading it, myself included, um, looked at and said, well, yeah, we've been prepared for that since probably November. Like, we, you know, like there's not much else we can do, you, you know, like from an organizational perspective, if there was a. Um, if there was a control that we could put in place that would help us protect against this, we would have done so by now. Um, now, over time, we may get better threat intelligence that allows us to understand the specifics of attacks that are being seen and how to, to defend, defend and protect against those. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, in terms of what they're trying to do, that is really unclear at this point um, because they can have a lot of different, different um, aims and objectives. Um, by and large um most cyber attacks are not finely pinpointed um you know things it's unlikely that you know the russian government would be sitting in um, the systems of the Ukrainian military and using that to understand where where you know troops are going and redirect troops to the wrong location or something like that like that's a very highly sophisticated attack that re- would require a lot of understanding of the environment and there'd be a ton of controls in place that change over time like that's hard now it's not to say that they may or may not be doing that like I don't know if they've got good capabilities they could easily do that um, if you want to take a step back and, and understand government level capabilities go read up on Stuxnet which was the the US's and, and to some extent the Israelis' um, attack against Iran nuclear reactors, like the level of sophistication of that attack is through the roof. And that's now going back, you know, a uh, uh, good number of years, um, maybe a decade now. I'm losing track of time. Um, but, you know, what But what it means to us, like, first of all, the presumption is, is there are certain sectors that um, the russians in particular would be more interested in attacking things that get to critical infrastructure Um, technology companies are always of interest to attackers because technology companies often have the keys to the kingdom and to get into other environments if you think about what a uh, attacker could do if they could get a backdoor into a cisco router image um, how many different uh, devices around the world they could then get access to that's a scary thought um, so we have to have to assume that we've got highly sophisticated attackers coming after us. Um, and they may be coming after, you know, they, there's no reason to think that they're going to limit their attacks to people who work on router code, right? They, they're going to be looking for an entryway into Cisco as a company and then use that to move laterally to get in um, to the specific code they're, they're looking for. Um, So, so that's, you know, so is that it's also quite likely, um, disruption attacks are also really popular and can do significant harm. Um, again, it depends on the, the motivation of, um, of Russia and it's, it's hard to know exactly what the motivation is and it changes over time. Um, do they want to do harm to physical people, you know, then go after the water supply. If you want to take out the, you know, power in a city to make a point, you know, then you go after the electrical grid. You want to um, cause pro- problems with the long-term food supply. Um, you break into the systems that um, that control the um, the tractors and farms to make them plant the. Um, you know, plant the seeds at the wrong depth so they don't grow. That was a, a, a sample attack that was done probably five or six years ago. Someone did a demonstration attack against that to just kind of make the point they would have to worry about food supply and, and, and cyber attacks against that. So it, it's a, a good memorable one. I don't know anyone who's actually weaponized that attack, but you have to assume it's a possibility. Um, you know, so, so it could be all sorts of things is the bottom line. Um, what do we do about that? Knowing that, so first of all, um, if, if you see something, say something. Any uh, anything that looks at all suspicious in the environment, anything that doesn't look normal, raise a hand. Let us know. Um, we need to be able to react to that quickly and understand whether it's legitimate. Because if you think about the number of times where there's some sort of event in the world that that goes bad, and someone says, "Yeah, I noticed so and so was looking kind of funny, operating kind of funny," but I didn't think anything of it, like that. We need to be be cognizant of that, and then you know, the usual, you know, make sure your systems are updated, make sure. And that, you know, f- that means both your personal systems, your um, systems at work, make sure you've got, got the latest version of um, the operating system and all the, the, the tools on it. And also make sure that when you're building code, that you're using the latest version of packages that you, you call log4j is a good example. We're still doing a little bit of cleanup on log4j stuff right now, despite the fact that this was a fire drill in, in December. Um, and it's, you know, we're not dealing with the high risk vulnerabilities. We're dealing with the medium risk vulnerabilities, but we shouldn't be dealing with any vulnerabilities with it now because the code has been fixed now. You know, four months ago. Um, you know, so that idea of always grabbing the latest and using it is absolutely critical control that we all can and should be doing in, in this day and age. Um, so, so that that's important. Uh, and I, I mentioned, be careful what you click on. <laughs> um, if I did, great. Be careful what you click on anyway. If I didn't, be careful what you click on, um, because you know that really is uh, the primary way in that, that people use is fooling people.
1: Something that Tony mentioned in his last episode with us is that you never waste a crisis, right? You're talking about the Log4j incident. You you take advantage of that, not. in in a bad way, but you take advantage of that and to rework the way that you think about the problems that happen. And then if a system needs to be changed or you need to rework a process or something like that to make that detected earlier rather than later, then that's a great opportunity to do it, right? Yep.
2: Yep. That's a, um, a quote comes from Rahm Emanuel when he was White House Chief of Staff. It's a, a great quote. I know many, many CISOs um, who live by that, that credo. Um, so completely in alignment. Um, you know, when, we, when something bad happens, there is more desire, more interest to make changes than there is at other times. And, you know, we have a lot of work we can do and a lot of things we can make better, um, you know, across Cisco and, and within our own environment.
0: We have talked a lot about all the hardship that is going on. Can you tell us a little bit? What are your, some of your favorite stories that you've come across <laughs> during your time working in security?
2: Security is a great, you know, there, it's, a, it's a great thing, and I think stories are a great way to um, to to uh, learn lessons. Um, and, and through my career, I've dealt with a number of uh, fun and tough and interesting situations. Um, I once had a, a guy call me up to tell me that his website had been um, broken into that he supported for for his um, for his group, and you know I hadn't seen anything in the log, so I was pretty confident it hadn't. I'm like, so what? What makes you think that? Um, it's been been compromised. And he said, well, when I open up the website, there's a giant laughing skull on it. I was like, yeah, okay, that's probably a good indicator. You know, in security we talk about <laughs> indicators are compromised. Um, but that one was pretty, pretty clear. And I just I hadn't caught it in the logs. So I, I fixed the log so that we would catch it. Um You know, I also, you know, security is one of those areas uh, and, you know, when we think about what it takes to effectively detect um, attacks against systems and people and and environments, um, I like saying that the Trick is is that the threat actors, the the malefactors, they're throwing needles into the haystack, and it's our job as security professionals to find those needles. And that kind of goes back to like why we have a tough job um, is that that it is much easier to to get the needles in the haystack than it is to find them. Um, another one of my my general maxims is never try to fight um, a, a bad guy for control of your system. Um, I had a situation many moons ago where. Um, a departmental administrator called me up, and and we're actually we called them up because we know there was a, a, a someone had broken into the system, and we're talking about it. And we had pulled the system offline because the first thing we want to do is contain that event so it couldn't spread, and so the person couldn't do any more damage. And the person administering it um, said to me, "He's like, well." you know, well, if you can, if you can turn the network port back on, I'll, I'll keep the machine unplugged until we've, um, you know, until we've, we've, um, you know, until until we've, we've gotten rebuilt the machine and gotten the person off of it. And, um, which, by the way, is like that's the general thing. Like, if somebody breaks into a system, assume that the needles are there. So, wipe out the haystack and put a new haystack in place. Reimage the machine, rebuild it from the ground up. One of those things that's much easier to do in cloud environments than it is to do in 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 old school server environments. Um, but this was way back then, before before for the cloud. And so the person with you know decided that he could fight for control of the system against the threat actor. So he tried to remove the backdoors. The person installed and plugged it back in, and um, the the threat actor who was in the system didn't, I was like, this isn't worth my time and just toasted the entire hard drive backups and then the hard drive. Um, so don't fight for control of systems because you're not going to win that battle unless you get it absolutely perfect. And it's really, really, really hard to get it absolutely perfect. Um, Thractors do what they do day in, day out. They're really good at what they do. Um, and you know, so unless what you do is, is fight for control over systems on day in, day out, you're not going to be as good as they are
1: i feel like there's no downside for them they're like oh it didn't work torched and then they're they're gone and it doesn't matter to them anymore whereas you this is your stuff and your data and, and your everything so you're like "Ah, oh, why did why did that happen
2: yep yeah uh, that 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 summarizes it nicely um and you know to be clear too like the the speed and scale with which they can do this i mean like i've i've in my career dealt with a couple of thankfully, relatively small ransomware incidents, but they spread really quickly. I mean, you know, matters of minutes, you can have, you know, large organizations down. So one of the things that that we, you know, need to have these protections in place in our environment is to make sure that, that things can't spread across the environment that way. I'm a really big fan of segmenting networks and not just server networks, but also the networks that we all log into um, as individuals because that keeps that lateral movement much harder and it makes it easier to detect it as well. Um, you know, so so I think that's you know there's a lot you need to do. <laughs> um, you know, again, we have to protect against every potential way in. The threat actors just need to find one area we didn't protect against to get in, um, and, then, and then add into that, we know we can't protect against every way they get in <laughs> that somebody could get in, um, because then you have to convince every individual to do everything. And here I am once again making it sound like the right thing to do is to go into a career of crime, um, because that's it's, it's um, <laughs> you know, so that's not a good uh, um <laughs> not a good path, but.
1: Well, thank you, Larry, so much for for joining us today. Uh, This is is so interesting to me, and I know that many other people are interested in this as well, and especially with all the things going on in the world today, super timely for the conversation to have place. So we thank you for all that you do, but we can't let you go without some rapid fire questions. Are you ready for that? I'm ready. Okay, so guilty pleasure.
2: Yeah, see, I don't know that I, I don't know that I think of pleasures as a guilty thing. I just I don't know. It's a tough question. That's not a rapid fire question. That's a, a thoughtful question that requires uh, uh, insight and analysis. <laughs> in in one of our in one of my my uh, team meetings, um, someone it wasn't asked me anything someone asked like whether I have any artistic outlets or something like that and and um so i i do um I do stained glass and I, I haven't done a lot recently since i i um since I moved from Chicago a couple of years ago I don't actually have a a room in the house to do the stained glass easily so I haven't been doing a lot of it but um it's an artistic outlet i guess but um they would call it a guilty pleasure <laughs> like, <laughs> Not guilty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it also it's it also can be it also can be really really frustrating, <laughs> like if you're trying to to um if you're trying to get get something in particularly certain types of curves, you can be trying over and over again and just have the glass break in a way that you don't expect it to, um it, or or maybe you expect it to but you hope it doesn't. In my case, because I'm not very good at it. <laughs> um, <so. laughs>
0: favorite favorite Olympic sport?
2: Oh, uh, luge. Absolutely luge.
0: And where, okay, this isn't rapid fire anymore, but where, where did that um, <laughs> passion come from?
2: Oh, I just like, I like watching the, the, I like watching the luge. I think it's a fun one. It's impressive to see how quickly people are going down that, that, um, route. I did, w- again, you know, side story. When I was in, um, Chicago, um, there are, um, three lose tracks in the the US but one of them's in Muskegon Michigan that um, has you can go and, and actually lose yourself so I wouldn't mind like kanga okay, go learn how to lose like it'd be a fun afternoon's activity um, Muskegon's not close enough to Chicago this afternoon's activity. So I, you know, planned in advance, got tickets to go do this, got a place to stay, you know, for a weekend, and then it warmed up too much and I couldn't do it. And then I moved to Los Angeles and there's no luge <laughs> here. Um so that's that's off my list of things to do. But
1: <laughs> so why the luge and not the skeleton or bobsled? The bobsled. Um Luge because it's actually like
2: on a, uh, sled and it's like the bobsled is too much of a, uh, like cart, you know, like it's, it seems maybe too much go-kart like to me, me. And again, this is like a complete, like all I watched the Olympics. That's about my only, I don't know what that actually is like for the, the people doing the, the the work skeleton, because you have the absolutely nuts to do that. Like it just that's, it's a crazy sport. Um,
1: <laughs> So that's the most reasonable of the crazy things that you can do, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah, it's it's what I call risk management. (laughs) (laughs) So you used to live in Chicago. Now you live in L.A. You moved here right before the pandemic, is what I was told. Yep. Thing that you like the most about living in L.A. now and thing that you miss the most from living in Chicago.
2: Yeah, so the thing I like the most about uh, LA is that there are three dimensions to the geography. Um, We have these things called hills and canyons. Chicago does not have hills and canyons. Like there, there, there are two hills in the city and one of them is artificial. Um, the other one probably is too. I just made up the number two, um, you know, cause I don't know of a second, um, you know, so I, that, that's absolutely. Um, the thing I miss the most about Chicago, the food, there's some really, really great restaurants in, in Chicago. And I, I'm told there's good restaurants in, in Los Angeles. Um, I haven't found things of the same, same quality. Um, but again, like also pandemic, I haven't been out and about as much. Um, so, you know, I, probably have missed out on some things. Though, if anyone listening to this is a Los Angeles person and wants to shoot me suggestions, particularly vegetarian places, I'm all ears. So. Or if you're new to Chicago and want good recommendations on, on vegetarian places in Chicago, I'm also happy to, to provide suggestions.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Give us a concert that you'll never forget.
2: You know, probably, so so, so one, I, i'll I'll confess I don't go to a, a a ton of concerts. I did um I do like opera. I've gone to a number of uh, opera concerts. There have been some pretty good ones uh, again in Chicago. I haven't been to anything since I've moved to to Los Angeles. um, but there's uh, a few years ago, a really good performance of Carmen there that i I really you know quite enjoyed.
0: Lovely, lovely. Awesome, Larry. Well, we learned a lot from you today and I'm sure all of our listeners will learn a ton as well. And we'll be sure to uh, be careful what you click on. Um, That was the number one takeaway. So thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you.